For those of you who attend regularly, you've seen that video a few times, and um, I don't know about you, but I love the piece where it says, what is undeniably spiritual becomes very practical in your life. And really, that's what, uh, that's what we find ourselves here in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 15 today. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 15, and uh, that's where we are. And uh, before I begin to preach, let me just welcome my sister-in-laws are in the house. Jane's two sisters are here with us for the very first time. So welcome to uh, Wendy, the youngest uh, of, the, of the three. Uh, she lives in Bow, New Hampshire, has a wonderful um, husband and two children. And Debbie, um, who is the middle child, Jane is the oldest, and uh, Debbie lives in, down in Orange, California, right down south down there by Disneyland. And uh, they recently moved from Nashville to California. I know a lot of people are moving from California to Nashville. Well, they came from Nashville to California. And that's uh, great. Uh, so Debbie is married to her husband, Don. And they have two adult children who are married. One lives in down where Debbie lives and one lives in Nashville. So great to have them here. I was telling them, I was like, I've been all, all weekend long, I'm like, ah, the Clitic sisters are in the house. That's her, that's their maiden name. The Clitic sister is in their house. First time in 34 years, Jane and I have been married that they, that the three of them have been in our house without their spouses. It was just, it's just the girls, you know, it's just the girls. I've been kind of trying to stay out in the other room, you know, let them do their thing. So, so anyways, hey, in, on, on December 29th, 1972, there was uh, an Eastern Airline flight with 100 people on board who died in a plane crash in the Florida Everglades. At that time, it was one of the worst um, airline disasters in our nation's history. But what made this crash tragic was not just the loss of life, but the cause. The cause of the plane crash. When the investigators pieced together the final moments of the plane's descent, they discovered that the only thing that malfunctioned on the plane was a small green light. Everything else was working properly. As the plane descended down into the Miami airport and the landing gear was, was deployed, the airline pilots looked and the green light that says that the, that, the, that the nose gear is down and locked did not light. And so they radioed to the tower. We've got a problem. Tower says go around. Go around. And finally, they said, go out into the Everglades and wander around there until you figure out whether or not you can really land safely. While the pilots were trying to figure out whether the landing gear was safely, they were about 2,000 feet above the Florida Everglades flying in a circle. And they were so fixated on this one light that they did not realize that they were descending at 20 feet per 30 seconds. You can imagine as they kept going around and around and around in a circle that all of a sudden they realized that they were too low and the 
left wing was scraping the Everglades and the plane went down and crashed. It's a poor sight, it's a terrible disaster for a little light. What they discovered was the landing gear was just fine, the light was just out. And I think so often that even in the church of Jesus Christ, there are times when we forget the bigger picture and that we focus on the problems that are right in front of us. If I took a poll this morning, I think you would be surprised at how many of us have experienced a church fight or even a church split over a light bulb or as I shared last week, over baseball caps. Or if you just want to think a few years ago, over masks. Lord help us, right? There are times where we have been fractured relationships that, have, that are so deeply bonded over things that were really, really small. Today we are in part two of last week's message. Last week we talked about Romans chapter 14 and this week we're going to talk about Romans, the first half of Romans 15. But really Romans 14 and 15 are really one continuous thought for Paul. Paul is addressing the church of Rome. He is writing from Corinth and he's writing to the church of, of Rome because he is telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 12 through the end of the book, he is really talking about the practical implications of what the gospel really means in our life. What is Christian living all about? In, those, in these final chapters, he has talked about some very practical things. And this chapter, verses chapter 14 and 15, was dealing with a church that was, that was not united but was divided. And Paul identified two of those issues in Romans chapter 14. The two issues that were really on his mind and that were in the church. Why would he be writing and addressing these issues if this wasn't a problem? Was the eating of food and special days. We talked about that last week. They were, they were small issues, but they were causing division within the church. And so Paul begins to address this in Romans chapter 14. And then he continues that thought in Romans chapter 15. And so let's get started. Let's read together the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 15 together. Let's stand together as we read God's word. And let's try to see if we can figure out what God would say to us about how to deal with these uh, peripheral or, as he said earlier, disputable matters and how we are to get along. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another just then, just as Christ has accepted you, 
in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become the servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, to the Gentiles, may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again in Isaiah, the root of Jesse will spring up, the one who will rise arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak to us today, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. And so, so I want to remind you of a couple of things we talked about last week. I, I kind of want to finish last week's sermon and do this week's sermon, okay? How many of you were, you were here in the house last Sunday in person? All right, about three quarters of you, okay? So, so you, you caught the, most of the message from last week. Um, the second service, by the way, we had a baptism service, so there was another half of the church that were not here. So I kind of feel weird about, about chapter 15, not really going back to 14, because they are so connected. You can't really understand what Paul says in chapter 15 without knowing what he says in chapter 14. So John Wesley said, and other theologians have said, said the same thing. In essentials, we must have unity and non-essentials, liberty. In all things, we have charity. In all things, we have charity. And so, so John Wesley and other theologians like Augustine and, um, and Calvin, many, many other um, theologians have talked about this idea of essentials and non-essentials. Paul addresses that matter here in chapter 14, verse 1. And we spent a great deal of time talking about what it means to dispute a mind. It says, except him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Except him whose faith is weak. And I want to remind you that the, the definition of a weak Christian is not what we would perceive it to be on its surface. That the weakness that he is talking about here is somebody who is saved, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they are a Christian, yet they may be a younger Christian or they may be somebody that is really struggling with some of the, of the habits or some of the peripheral matters of living a life for Christ. In that day and time, the weak Christian was the person who was struggling over food. Yes, over food. Most of you do not struggle over food, okay? Most of you have an idea that if it's in front of me, I'll eat it. And I have no problem with that. But here in, the, in this church, there were young Christian Jewish men and women who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and grew up in a tradition where you didn't eat certain things, certain meats, certain, um, certain things in, on the plate because they were deemed as unclean. They were, they were detrimental to your spiritual well-being. And so, so when Christ comes, he does away with many of the dietary laws of the day and time that were in Judaism. And now these new Christians find that they are in their, this newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles who did not grow up in that tradition, they didn't have any problem eating anything. 
They had no problem eating the steak, the ribs, the pork, whatever it was that was put in front of them because they didn't grow up Jewish. They didn't have a problem. So here you have in Rome, you've got the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And they've got to get along with each other. They've got, to re- they've got to learn how to accept each other and how to be in relationship with each other. And so Paul says to the church of Rome, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And the two disputable matters he identifies again was food and special days. Last week we did a in, in church kind of um, all church experience and I went around the room and you guys identified some, some disputable matters today. And I'm not going to go through that exercise again. You could probably remember some of those things. But there are some things that us Christians don't agree on. And they are not at the center and the core of our faith. They are on the peripheral. I give you a little chart here. There are, there are three types of ways of looking at things. You've got the absolutes. Absolutes, by the way, are, um, are, are, <clears throat> is a category that defines the essence of Christian, Christian life. You believe these in order to be Christian. An example of an absolute would be that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died on a cross, that he rose again from the dead, and that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus. That's an absolute, okay? An absolute for us is that these 66 books of the Bible are the inspired word of God. That's an absolute, okay? An absolute is that we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that we are sinners, you go back to the, to the doctrines of the church, those would be what we would consider to be essentials. They would, we need unity when it comes to those matters in order for the church to have unity within the body of Christ. The second category is what, what they call convictions. Convictions are strongly held scriptural beliefs that have significant impact upon the health and effectiveness of you as a believer in Christ and the church in its, in its totality. We have convictions, okay? I have convictions, you have convictions. Many of those convictions are founded upon the principles and the teachings of the word of God that we consider an absolute. They are clearly spelled out for us in scripture. And those convictions are deep within you. And then the longer you walk with Christ, you become deeper and stronger in those convictions that you have in your own heart. Somebody who's a new believer in Christ may have, may have lesser convictions about certain things than somebody who has been walking with Christ for a long time. They may have deeper and, and stronger convictions about certain things because there is a growth pattern. But they're just as much believers in Christ as anybody else. And then there is the third category, which is preferences. Or as Paul uses the word, disputable matters. These preferences or disputable matters are less clear issues that are often applications of particular passages of Scripture. So you might have a particular passage of Scripture that that kind of addresses something, but it's not particularly clear, and you might begin to have preferences on those certain things. Now, I was thinking back to when I was a young pastor. I would never go to church in this outfit. 
I mean, I, I, I mean, it would always be a suit and tie if I was on the platform. It would always be, you know, that I was dressed in a certain garb and it was expected. And if I didn't dress like this, somebody told me so. And there was a time if you women were not wearing dresses, it would be considered almost sinful. Am I correct, Lita? Been there, right? Even Lita wears pants now, praise God. <laughs> She's the saint of the church, the patriarch, you know, so hallelujah. If Lita does it, the rest of you women can do it, you know, praise God. If Lita doesn't do it, then you better scrape up. No, that's not the way it works, isn't it? But there is a preference in that, all right? Now, whenever liberalism is taking an absolute, liberalism, now catch this, is taking an absolute and treating it as a preference. Liberalism is when we have watered down Christianity to the place where it says, you know what, you don't have to really believe in Jesus to be saved. All roads lead to the same end. You know, this is, this is um, a good book, but it's not the word of God. You could read another book, it would give you the same emphasis. And you begin to, or you begin to say, well, some of the Bible is true and the rest of it is myth. All of these things is when we take absolutes and we move it to preferences. This is very common. Remember a couple weeks ago I talked about our world today is postmodern, that we are living in a relativistic world. There's no right and wrong anymore. So this is happening more and more, not only in the world, but it's seeping into the church where we no longer have anything we can hold on to. That's liberalism, okay? Um, legalism, now catch this, is the opposite. Legalism, and us Nazarenes have been guilty of this. Legalism is when we take preferences and make them absolutes, okay? Legalism is when we say everybody's gotta wear a suit and tie to church. Legalism says if you're not wearing a dress and it's not below your, your kneecaps, then you're not a believer, you're not welcomed here. Legalism is when we define our Christianity by an external set of rules and regulations that we have sort of made from, from particular not clear passages of scripture in such a way that it leads us to the place where we make judgments upon other people of their faith in the Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? And so both extremes are there. Sometimes I believe in the church of the Nazarene, in our, in our holiness tradition, we have more of a problem with legalism than we have with liberalism. Now that's not always the case, but I would say that that's sometimes the case in our church. I gave you a definition of disputable matters last week. Let me remind you what it is again. Disputable matters are issues in which the Bible does not give a clear directive. We're not talking about lying, stealing, adultery in which God's word abundantly clear. We're talking about matters of conscience in which God has given us freedom. And Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 14, verse number four, he says this. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
fully convinced. In other words, the, the, when you're taking things from God's word and you begin to go from not just absolutes but convictions, and all of us should have convictions, okay? All of us should have convictions where we are fully convinced. I am personally fully convinced that alcohol is not a good thing. It's not. That's what I'm fully convinced of. And for me to take a drink would be sinful to me. But for you as another brother and sister, you may not have the same solid strength of conviction about, about alcohol or having a glass of wine at dinner or having a beer once in a while. Those things doesn't wreck your faith. You don't have absolute conviction about that. Although I really believe with all my heart, I'll be honest with you as your pastor, when you look at the totality of scripture, and what the scripture says about alcohol, and you look at the effects that alcohol has upon so many people's lives in a detrimental way, my prayer is that you will gain that strong conviction that I have in my heart for you, for yourself and your family. Now that's a good old Nazarene boy, amen? Okay? It's a good old Nazarene holiness boy, all right? And I realize that that's not always the case for all of us. But you must be fully convinced. And so last week I gave you these three points. How do we get along when we don't agree? And we talked about these three things. Give grace to others on disputable matters. Don't look down upon someone you disagree with. In other words, somebody might have a conviction that you don't have. Don't look down upon them and say, oh, you're not as spiritual as I am. You're not as good a Christian as I am. And you have contempt in your heart, your voice, and your body language in such a way that people feel like you're judging you. Okay? We've got to be careful of that. We've got to give liberty. We've got to give freedom for things that people aren't, they're not, they're not yet at the place where you have those convictions. If I go to your house and you offer me a beer, I'll probably say, no, can I have a Coke? But I'm not going to look at you and think you're an unbeliever. Amen? Now, you have already heard my conviction, so you're probably not going to offer me one. But when Jane and I were living in Maryland, we had a bunch of friends that lived on our street together. We'd go to the annual Christmas party that was in somebody else's house. And guess what they offered us? They offered us alcohol. Actually, many of them gave us bottles of wine for Christmas. We didn't look at them with disdain or contempt or judgment. We politely said, no, thank you. Or we politely said, hey, I'd love to have some water. Um, you, got a, you got a soft drink. And nobody was bothered by it. But I didn't get put out to the place where I looked down upon them. Let God be the judge of these things. Amen. Let God be the judge of these things. Let God be the worker and, and ruler in their life. Now. Last week, I spent a little bit of time on this stumbling block issue, and I need to go back there because I didn't finish my thought. I didn't finish the things that I think are really important for us to do. Paul says in Romans 14, he says, Instead, make up your not mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Make up your mind. If you have a strong conviction... 
If you have strong convictions about things that are based upon principles or the totality of scripture on certain areas of your life, do not make them so large that you become a stumbling block for somebody else. Now, it was different for them in, in biblical times because it was those who were strict about food that were considered weak and those who were liberal about food that were considered strong. See how that works? I think it's almost the opposite in our, in our context. In our context, I would say that sometimes in a holiness church like we have, where we are strong on standards, strong on lifestyles that are, that are conservative, that sometimes our weakness is that those of us who have strong convictions are judgmental of those who don't have the strong convictions we have. And so, so our strong conviction sometimes leads to a stumbling block along the way. Paul says it this way, and let's just look at it in, in the context of, of Paul's day. He says, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, by the way, as one, so Paul is saying, I am one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So Paul is of the, of the mindset. He would be considered the, the one who has been enlightened. He, remember, Paul is a Jew of Jews. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul grew up in the Jewish tradition who knew all the dietary laws. He's come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now his process of, of spiritual growth has gone from the absolute of knowing that Jesus died for them to the conviction now, the conviction that he is fully convinced in his own heart and mind that there is no food that is unclean in itself. If there's bacon on the table, Paul's going to eat it. Okay, so Paul is making a declaration of here, he's the writer of the letter, of where he stands on the issue. But, he says, if anyone regards something as unclean, in other words, they're not fully convinced in their own mind that food is, is all food is okay to eat, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is in distress because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. So let's say you are Rusty, I'm sorry, I'm Raleigh and Claudia. Let's say that you believe that bacon is bad. Bacon is unclean. Bacon is a sin for you. And you come to my, I invite Raleigh and Claudia to my house. And the Hardys love BLTs. And I say, well, so what? I mean, Raleigh and, and Claudia just need to wake up. I mean, who, who are they to tell us what to eat? We're inviting them to our house and we're going to have bacon. We are bacon eaters. We're going to have some bacon on the table. They walk in the house and the place is smelling like bacon. The bacon, this house smells all over the place like bacon. And we put out the beautiful plate of bacon and lettuce and tomato and mayonnaise and toast. And we're going to make our sandwiches. Would that be the right thing to do? 
based on this scripture? David, is that the right thing to do? No, it's not, is it? You know what? You know what we're going to have when we invite Raleigh and Claudio for dinner? We're going to have lettuce and tomato and avocado. <laughs> we're going to skip the bacon. And we're not going to make it any big deal out of it. Now that sounds stupid to us, doesn't it? It's like, really? But this is exactly the issue I found ourselves in about two years ago when we had masks. And I, I was really, as your pastor, I was like, I don't, I, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. I could say to everybody, hey, if you're going to come to church, you must wear a mask. Masks are mandatory because the state of California says it's, it must be so. Guess what would have happened? A whole lot of people would have got ticked off. I could have said, we're just going to meet together and we're not even going to mention the mask and I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't want to offend anybody. And guess what we would have done? We would have offended a whole other group of people. We were stuck in the middle of, of, of a peripheral issue that became the issue that led to the place. And unfortunately, there were some who said, if the church is going to wear a mask, I'm not going to that church anymore. And they left. And there are others who said, because the pastor has not made it mandatory and there are people in the room who are sitting in the room without a mask, I'm not coming because he's not hard enough. So sometimes the issue is, is you're stuck in the middle. You're kind, of, you're kind of like, what do I do? If I do this, then this. If I do this, then this. And you feel like you're gonna offend somebody no matter which way you go. So you know what we did here at Olive Knowles? I said, here's what the state says. We're not going to be the mass police. We're going to give freedom and liberty for people to do whatever their conscience says that they want to do. In the middle of that, some people didn't like that. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Paul says that our actions should not lead to destroying your brother or sister. I have found as a Christian that as you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ and you have freedoms and liberties, there are times in your life where you are going to have to limit your own liberties for the sake of others. We say that one more time. You're going to have to choose to limit your liberties that you do not have a conviction over doing a certain thing or, or you do something in light just for the sake of others. And that's why for many times, I'll be honest with you, I wore a mask here at church, but if I was just me in my house, I didn't wear a mask at home. And if I was out privately all by myself, I wasn't that uptight about the masks. But for social concerns and for the body of Christ, I tried to do what was the best thing for all. And I still didn't please everybody. 
Well, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 9. Remember, Paul's writing this from Corinthians. He says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Amen? The exercise of your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. You and I live in community. Even though we are American, individualistic, Kern County, conservative people who want to do our own thing our own way, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. As Christians, we have to always think about our neighbor. Why? Well, we're going to see that in chapter 15. Because Paul says that's what Jesus did. He thought about his neighbor. So, let us make, the, he ends chapter 14 with these words. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Leads to peace and mutual edification. And that's what we're trying to do, by the way. The whole COVID thing. That's all I, this was, this was my verse. That's what I was trying to do as your pastor. And sometimes it didn't work, but that was the goal, was to make every effort. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of a mass. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of alcohol. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of a sacred day. Do not destroy the work of God over sports. Do not destroy the work of God over cards. Do not destroy the work of God over any peripheral issue. Do not let that issue, the light on the airplane, down the whole airplane. That's what happens in the church too often. Where was I? All food is clean, he says, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine, now catch this, or to do anything else. That will cause your brother to fall. Why? You're your brother's keeper. You care about others. You care so much, not only about you personally, but you are now part of the body of Christ. You're part of a family. And families love one another. Families look out for one another. Families care about one another. And that's what Paul says in chapter 15. And I'll go through this real quick. Because I think it's really, really, it's really positive scriptural teaching based upon the issue that Paul identifies in chapter 14. First of all, we're to look out for one another. Notice what he says in verse number 1 of chapter 15. Remember, verse number 1 of chapter 14, accept the weaker brother over disputable matters. Okay? In chapter 15, he says, we who are strong. Notice Paul says, we, so he identifies himself in the category of the strong. He identifies himself in the category of those who have been liberated and free to eat whatever the food is that's on the plate. 
It's all clean. The peripheral issue is no longer an absolute. The peripheral issue has freedom. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should do what pleases our neighbor for his good to build him up. So how are we to, how are we to bear with the failings of the weak? You know what the word bear means? It means to put up with. Now, if you're in a marriage, you understand this. You put up with your spouse at times. Okay? You don't see eye to eye in a particular issue and you go, Jane will go, it's just Kevin. I'm not going to change him. I may as well just put up with it. He puts his shoes there all the time. I don't want him to put his shoes there. I want him to put the shoes in the closet. But it, I'm, this, is, this is a made up example, by the way. Jane doesn't do this. She's in the room. She's really kind and generous towards me in a very wonderful way. Sometimes I wash the dishes and I don't really wash them really well. And she'll put the dishes away and she'll have to rewash the dishes I washed. That's a true story. And you know really what happens? She puts up with it because she could get mad at me. You know what usually happens? I get mad at her for washing them a second time. I washed those dishes last night. Aren't they good enough? No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> but that's what bearing with each other. As brothers in Christ, here's what we've got to do with each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to learn how to tolerate our differences when it comes to our preferences and the convictions that may be in development, okay? And the scripture says each of us should please our neighbor to what? To build him up. We don't want to destroy somebody. If you look down upon somebody, if you judge somebody, if you have a body language of contempt, you are building a wall between brothers and sisters in Christ and the church is beginning to to, to break apart over things that it shouldn't break apart on. And so Paul says to us, we need to look out for one another. I love what he says over in Galatians 6.2. He says, bear one another's burdens. What are you doing when you bear one another's burdens? You are fulfilling the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says to us that the example of Christ is the ultimate example of how the body of Christ should treat one another. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. By the way, another time, this is Psalm 69.9. Look that up. It's a messianic psalm. And then in the verse number four, he talks about how he interprets scripture. I wish I had time to develop that with you because it's pretty cool. But look out for one another. If you're going to be like Jesus in the way you relate to others, you need to not only look out for each other, you got to hang and stick with one another. Amen? 
Hang and stick with one another. Look what Paul says in two statements here. He says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement. May the God who gives endurance. If you're going to be in any relationship, you're going to have to be committed to stick with it through the good times, the tough times, the ups and downs of life. This week, my favorite quarterback announced that he is divorcing his wife. And his wife announced that he is, she is divorcing my favorite quarterback. I thought to myself, Tom Brady, you, are, you, are, you have everything this world has to offer. You have all of the riches, the fame, the money, the status. You've got a beautiful wife. You've got two beautiful children. And in 13 years, you can't get along well enough that you're going to just throw in the towel? You know why? Because God is not the center of his life. Now, I'm not his judge, but it's clear to me. He's given no profession of faith. And ultimately, it is God who gives us endurance and encouragement. Endurance and encouragement. You know, sometimes what Pastor Kevin does, you probably have experienced this in the few years that I've been your pastor. I'll give you a call and I'll say, hey, how you doing? I make probably 20, 25 calls a week. Sometimes they're text, because I know you're busy. But you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to encourage, 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 encourage. You know why? Because I know sometimes my brothers and sisters in Christ are weak. And they're struggling. And I'm talking about weakness in the sense of being beat down by a world that beats them down all week long and by all the struggles of life and the burdens they carry. May God who gives endurance, who keeps us going and gives us encouragement, he says, give you a spirit of unity among yourselves, among ourselves, that we will stick with each other. We will hang with each other. We won't give up on each other. We won't run from each other. We won't, we won't think that it's better the green, grass is greener on the other side of the fence or in another church, but we will stick with all of Knowles. Amen? That's what he wants. So that with one heart and mouth, we will, you may glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In all of our diversity, young and old, Democrats and Republicans, men and women, conservative and liberals, people who are farmers and people who are businessmen, people who are from one nationality to another nationality, that all together the body of Christ will come together and worship Almighty God. Why? Because he has given us endurance, encouragement to stick together and praise him together. That's what unifies us. 
And I love what one writer says. And then he goes, by the way, may the God of hope fill you with joy. We're going we're to just skip there. But I love what this says. In Christ there is no east or west. In him there is no south or north. But one great fellowship of love. Throughout the whole wide earth. Join hands then, brothers of faith. Whatever your race may be, who serves my father as a son is surely kin to me. Amen. Stick together. Stick together. Here's the last thing I think Paul says to us. Be like Jesus in the way. Believe the best in each other. Believe the best in each other. If we're going to be family, we've got to stop beating each other up. We got to believe the best in one another. I find it really interesting after Paul talks about a chapter and a half talking about weak and strong, talking about those who are struggling over an issue and those who are not struggling over the issue, how they were to judge each other, accept each other, that Paul finally says in verse number 14, he says, I myself am convinced. Remember that whole idea of convinced? He was convinced that food was okay. He was convinced that, that it was all right to eat whatever was on your plate. He was convinced but he comes to the place where he says, you know what? You Jews and Gentiles, you, the, you are those who are from different walks of life who have now come together in Jesus Christ. He says, I'm convinced that you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. The next time you're tempted to think the worst of somebody, stop yourself. Let me say that one more time. The next time you are tempted to think the worst of somebody, stop yourself. Are they your brother in Christ? Are they your sister in Christ? Have they been saved by the same blood as the one who saved you? Are you their ruler? Are you their God? Who are you to judge them? Stop thinking the worst of each other and start thinking the best of each other. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Give liberty, grace, and freedom for God to be God in their life and not you to be their God. And we, as a church, will be better for it. Amen? We need each other. We need each other to do the work that God's called us to do. And to be the example and the witness to the rest of the world. That Christ is our Lord. I finish with this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in your life will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is not done with you yet. And he's not done with me yet. And he's not done with us yet. He is continuously forming himself in us. May we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
continuously be sanctified, cleansed, and renewed in our minds and our thoughts of the way we treat one another. Because that, my friends, is the way the gospel is lived out. Amen? I want our church to be a place that's attractive to the unbeliever. I want our church to be a place that is attractive to those who've wandered away from the faith that need to come home. I want our church to be a place where people go, those people stick with me. Those people love me. Those people went out of the way for me. Because when we do that, our church will continue to be the light in the darkness, the salt of the earth, and we'll see lives changed. Amen? Amen. Well, it's 945. Let's stand together. Pastor Cedric, hello, come on out. There he is. Would you just, somebody play that song, I Surrender All, real quick, just on the keyboard? Is that somebody? Somebody here can do that? Oh, God. As we conclude this service, thinking about Romans 14 and 15, you've made it very clear that you've given us incredible freedom in Christ. I pray that you'd help us as we continuously develop convictions that are based upon your word, that you'd help us not to be a people that allow preferences or disputable matters to divide us. Jesus, this has been a problem in the church since the beginning of time. The beginning of the church has been people fighting with each other. I pray that you'd help us. I surrender all. I surrender all to you right now. Have your way in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. God bless everybody.